Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cave Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we once again have a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, interview one of the uh, apologetic uh, uh, heroes of, uh, of our day, and uh, we've actually met him before. Uh, he came to our church, and so uh, I, I was telling him that I was uh, putting that in my email to him so I could kind of strong arm him a little bit into <laughs> uh, uh, inter- interviewing with us, our, our little podcast here. Uh, but I want to introduce, uh, for those who don't know, to uh, Jay Warner Wallace. He was a cold case homicide detective for the LAPD. He serves currently as the senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University, and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. Jay Warner became a Christ follower at the age of 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skills as a detective. He eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of such books as Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith, Alive, and So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging Worldview. And he does have uh, Cold Case Christianity for Kids, and I believe also God's Crime Scene for Kids as well. And a few other here and there. Uh, You can find him on Amazon Prime, uh, he's got there, or Right Now Media, if your church subscribes to that or you subscribe to that. Um, so uh, he's 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 everywhere. And uh, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you, uh, yeah, uh, Detective Wallace. Yeah. Well, I fooled you into thinking that I'm everywhere. So that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. Uh, so, 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 so you're an old, uh, a new baby Christian. Uh, everyone can tell that uh, it's, it's the California son that, uh, that has done it. So we kind of just want to get to know you. And um, to to kind of hear your story, but my very first question is: um, knowing the people that you've sit, sat have sat across from in your cold case detective and and your homicide detective, how does it feel coming on to any show where you know that you've you've been in front of worse people before? <laughs> yeah, like, that no, must uh, center you really well. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Like a lot of the times, you have motives. I mean, you have a. Um, um, a goal in your interviews when you're talking to somebody across the table from you who you know has committed a crime, those conversations, right? It's hard, kind of hard not to be really goal focused, right? But you know, I get to the truth. So those are generally a little more antagonistic in the sense that they're not uh, cordial. It's not like, oh, I want to learn about you. Well, no, actually, I already know everything about you. I want you to get to this issue. You know, so, <laughs> so it's not, it's, you're right. It's not nearly as, uh, as much fun as just having a conversation. I think, what, but I will tell you this, the more I learn to just have a conversation with people I'm, I'm talking to, to get to know them on a personal level, which I never did before I became a Christian, um, the, the, the better uh, I maintain some relationships with the guys we put in jail. Uh, I know that some of these guys, when they come out, I'll, I'll probably be able to, if they ever do come out, I'll probably, uh, they might find contact me at some point. Um, so I think that um, those are things that uh, only happen because I had a shift in my thinking. You know, I was 35 before that shift took place. I did a lot of cases, did a lot of really long interviews with robbery suspects and homicide suspects before I became a Christian. And my attitude was different in those days. You know, you have a tendency to see yourself as the good guy. Uh, and I did that. I mean, I, I was on the job about eight years before I was provoked to look at the Gospels. And I remember uh, that my approach to people was different. Uh, you know, you, you, you didn't realize, I mean, I, you always kind of, nobody comes to faith in Christianity and Jesus as Savior until they first understand their own need for a Savior. And in those days, I didn't see myself. I was one of the good guys taking bad guys to jail. Yeah, you need to, you that, need to understand the bad news before you can know know the good, good news. news right? yeah. yeah, no, that's so true, and 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 so I had a different view, 
Um, and my partners for years afterwards still had that view where they would say, hey, we're good people. We take bad people to jail. If right, there's a good God and a good heaven, we'll be there because we are good people. Right, so there's yeah. a sense in which, you know, the, the unregenerate, the, the, the pre-Christian version of me um, really saw this, this difference between the people we were taking to jail and the people that were investigating the people we took to jail. Really, after becoming a Christian, it became pretty clear to me that um, there wasn't a big distinction between those two mm-hmm. groups, you know, that that I really was, but for the grace of God, could easily be on the other side of the table, especially mm-hmm. working cold cases, because cold cases are, are murders that are usually committed by just average regular people mm-hmm. who then spend the next 25 years living in a way that you would never, ever, ever guess they committed a murder 25 years ago. I don't work serial killers. I work you know, single murders that are committed by regular people who get away with it. And then they kind of live an ordinary life for the next 35 years until they finally get convicted. So it's really, um, it helped me to understand that I'm not much different than that. And that changes the way you interview people. That changes the way you talk to anybody when you realize I'm not so different than you. So, so that did change the way my interviews took place. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so uh, uh, put, kind of put us in a, in a, uh, a setting and, and a time period for um, when you uh, first got into your detective work, and then uh, essentially, uh, what caused you to start questioning kind of uh, uh, Christianity? Or, or what was it that was kind of the catalyst that got you started? I think a lot of it um, is it was just my, my wife was interested in, and had a, had a good um, uh, kind of a cultural experience with uh, her mom, who was Catholic, growing up to the point where she felt like this was something maybe we should consider when we're raising our own kids. Now, I, we had been together about 18 years before she convinced me to go to church. Wow. And uh, as she was able to do that, I was more than willing. I just thought I would be going as an attendee. Right. I mean, look, if somebody wanted you to go on a chick flick with your wife, would you be willing to go because your wife wants to see that movie? Of course you would. I would think. And if that happened every week, would you be willing to go? I think you would. You might at least be three or four, three out of the four weeks. You might be willing to go see that movie. Yeah. That's kind of how I considered, you know, this, my approach to this. I can go um, and, you know, I might even get something out of it. Uh, it doesn't have to be true in order for it to have value, especially if it helps us raise our kids. That was my view. Interesting. Um, so I was now, did I mock the Christians that I met? Yeah, I did. Uh, and the people who knew me who also enjoyed because a lot of the Christians we met were people we were taken to jail and they were easy to mock. Wow. So a lot of the people that we would kind of make fun of were the people who um, we thought this, whatever these Christians are like, they're not very good people because they're doing all these crimes yeah. they go in their house after they've done a murder 25 years ago. And you'll find I remember one guy went in his house after he did this murder years earlier, we're going there for the interviews. And I found about 12 years of Bible studies in his mm-hmm. living room. And I just thought, here we go. This is it. Right. So I just, I was condescending for the most part, but I wasn't out to prove it wrong. Like my friend Lee Strobel, when Leslie became a Christian, I, I, he really did, it bothered him and he was out to prove it wrong. And, you know, his story in case for Christ is different than mine. I, I didn't think this was worth even investigating. In other words, wow. you don't investigate the existence of, you know, uh, the, you know the Easter Bunny. Right. This is, this is the kind of category that I had this in so that it made no sense to me to uh, even take it seriously. But the pastor in this church that my wife decided we want, we should attend, 
was clever enough. He, he, know, he knew he had unbelievers in that room, and he described Jesus as the smartest man who ever lived. He described Jesus as a historical character who had such great influence over the course of history that all history was somehow changed, that we were in this ripple effect. We were in the ripples of this stone that had been dropped in history. And, and everything we were experiencing, we were just riding the cascading ripples of this event. And I thought to myself, if that was true, I should be able to investigate that to see if that's true, right? I mean, I should be able to see, well, number one, why do we think he's so smart? And number two, why did he have the kind of, did he, does he really, look, I, I lived in Southern California and I still live in the same area. And I will tell you, growing up in Los Angeles County, I had no problem living a life outside the church, knowing no Christians until, you know, really I was an adult. I just, the, the area here is so large. It's such an urban area. You know, the more, the closer the city is to the ocean, the closer a city is to, you know, as large, the larger a city is and the closer a city is to large universities, the more secular the city is likely to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm in an area that I didn't, I wasn't like being raised in the religious South. It was very easy to grow up, but not even give Christianity a second thought here. So had you even ha- ever heard the gospel before then? Um, no. As a matter of fact, well, as I was, um, well, had I ever heard someone, I'm sure I had heard people uh, preach uh, pieces of the gospel, but I wasn't going to sit long enough to hear the whole thing. And, and right. again, remember, for a lot of us, whatever is being said just kind of bounces off because it makes no sense to us, right? So. Right. So what I remember, though, investigating the, the claims of the gospel writers and, and determining that I felt that those claims were reliable historically, but still not understanding why Jesus would have to die on a cross. In other words, you, can under, you could um, come to the conclusion that the gospels are true, yet still not understand the gospel. Yeah, yeah. that's a big point that uh, Dr. Uh, James White makes is that without understanding that the Bible is God's word breathed, we don't, you know, yes, uh, Christ rose from the dead, but in like an evolutionary standpoint, that's entirely possible. You, You need a revelatory piece of the puzzle to make sense of what what that means and, and give it meaning. That's right. The problem I have though, is that, that you, and, and, and I'm, I'm an evidentialist. I am deeply committed to an evidential approach to my faith for a reason, because I, I'd never, you could never have reached me and said, Hey, we just need to understand that we presuppose that this Bible is the word of God. I understand the value it has in revealing truth. But remember I've all my family was divided between atheists and Mormons and the Mormons in my family believed the Book of Mormon was, by its very nature, they presupposed it to be telling us the truth. And, and they said anywhere that it disagreed with the, with the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, that is part of the great apostasy, the, 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 the falling away of yeah. the Christian church that was corrected and restored by Joseph. So you presuppose this, and you only can learn what's true about God by presupposing this, and you judge everything else against this. I just knew that that was not, that was not the way you're going to reach me. I would not trust what the New Testament said about Jim Wallace until I first learned or investigated to to determine that I trusted what it said about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, once I found it to be reliable, now I could listen to what it had to say about me. Hmm. I I simply could not, I was not interested in what your holy book says about me because your holy book says something about me. The Baha'is have a holy book that says something about me. The Muslims have a holy book that says something about me. 
why would your holy book be telling me something true about me? Well, first I determined it was telling me something true about Jesus of Nazareth. And I was like, okay, well, now I'm paying attention. Hmm. And, and I was willing to read what it said about me. So what do you think was the most important thing that you learned about Jesus of Nazareth that grasped, you know, that got your attention, that made you say, huh, okay, this is what's going on here? Well, I think the, the just one, there's one central claim, right, of all of Christianity that matters more than any other claim. It's the claim of the resurrection. Because Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, if this isn't true, well, then there's no authority in the voice of, first of all, it's all a lie. Because every claim related to Jesus centers on his deity as demonstrated by the resurrection. Look at the preaching of every apostle in the book of Acts. It's all going to come back to that foundational event, the resurrection, and that they were eyewitnesses of that resurrection, which he did make, as Peter says in Pentecost, many signs, wonders were performed by Jesus, including the resurrection, which demonstrated that this is the man predicted by the Old Testament. So it all comes down to that. And so for me, it all came down to that. You know, so it's, it's like we always say, Frank Turk and I say this a lot, that if, if you're somebody who rises from the dead, I have a tendency to pay attention to you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth of what separates Jesus from other historic wise teachers. And that's, that's what for me, it all came down to, to really working on this one issue. Hmm. I would never have been open to the idea that anyone in history could ever rise from the grave. Uh, and but, and uh, around around what year did, did this kind of take place? Well, I was thirty five, so it was uh, ninety six ish. So did, did did you draw upon um, uh, scholars, or did it was this you sat down and only applied your method? Like uh, you know, we we now have just uh, an overabundance. I mean, there's you, there's Lee Strobel that you, you mentioned, there's Frank Turk, there's you know, uh, you know, just a, a whole slew of, of people that we can turn to. Like Gary Habermas has come and and spoken to a group in yep. uh, by our college, and and we've I think we've come to. Uh, understand more about uh, the transmission of the gospel and and yeah. and just uh, you know different argumentation that that uh, have gone out of vogue and then come back in and uh, new ones that have been made. Were there people that that you were relied upon on, or or was this kind of you sat down and you just applied the method that you you describe in stuff like cold case Christianity? Yeah, so I can honestly say that back in '96, I know that Lee's book. Had just come out, maybe a couple of years earlier. I wasn't yeah, familiar. The case with it. for Christ. Yeah, I just didn't know about it. Hmm. Um, uh, he was actually about a year later on our staff at Saddleback Church, uh, at the church where I was uh, attending. And uh, but you know, I just didn't know much about his book in time to really. And I think really, if you think look at that book, it it kind of started an explosion of apologetics because. All of the people who he introduced in that book, I think, were largely unknown at the time or were just starting to really become known in the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. And he's interviewed people now. You know, everyone knows who those folks are. Yeah. I just I, maybe it was just me uh, being a non-Christian that I just didn't know that there was a whole field of work out there. I didn't even know Josh McDowell, <laughs> like, you know, evidence that demands a verdict. Yeah. I just didn't have access to those resources. I knew, though. The way the template that I use to determine if an eyewitness is reliable. And so you'll see in my book, I think I might refer to it to some experts in the book, but really it, the book doesn't do that. It, 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 I, you, I, I'm also extremely, and I'll just tell you guys this, and I tell it to a lot of people, 
if you've got a PhD behind your name, that doesn't have a lot of weight for me. <laughs> Only because in my criminal trials, both sides will trot out somebody with letters behind their name, mm -hmm. speaking about the exact same piece of evidence in front of the jury. And both people who have letters behind their name will say that the best inference is exactly the opposite from the first guy. <laughs> So it turns out that that, that it, if you just rely on experts, I mean, we ask the jurors to go back to what it is they are talking about. So for me, at the most it would have been helpful, I think, is if I didn't know who these experts were, so I could be pointed back to what it is they were talking about. Because in the end, I asked jurors to go back to the evidence. Remember, this expert's just giving you his inference from the evidence, but you get to make your own inference from the evidence. You don't have to agree with that expert on either side. Now, it's good to have a broad spectrum of, of people who give you their opinion about what this best inference is. But if I, you go to my talks, for example, you will not hear me trot out the names of experts. So-and-so says this about the gun. I don't care what anybody says about it. Let me show you what the base evidence looks like. You can make your own decision. That's what my talks are all about. I do not cite experts. And so when you were doing your, your investigation, you looked at the primary source document, the scriptures, my guess is to yeah. kind of make your own decision with regard to what it was saying, right? Is that, is yeah, that what you're saying? And I did this also with the Book of Mormon because I did not have, I had my family when they saw me becoming interested, you know, my dad's not a believer, he's an atheist, but my dad's second wife is a Mormon. And I have six half brothers and sisters all raised LDS. And one of them started to go, you know, hey, here's a Book of Mormon. So I went out and bought the entire quad, which is the Old and New <laughs> Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearly Great Price. And yeah. I read through all of it, hmm. applying the same uh, methodology to the Book of Mormon that I was applying to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I read the Book of Mormon before I read the Old Testament. Hmm. So I had to really kind of and sift. I wasn't sure what if either of these made any sense. And, you know, I really wasn't out to prove the Book of Mormon wrong. Because I think I would have been very comfortable within the context of my religious family, who were not religious, but I mean... My, my immediate family, there's no believers anywhere, but my dad's second family does have Mormon believers. I would have been more than happy to join them. Hmm. Not true. So I, I couldn't jump in. But Would you but, ever consider writing a book on on what you did? Well, with the book I, of I've, too? I've written a chapter on a book by uh, Eric Johnson on how to witness to Mormons in which hmm. I kind of walk through. And I've got a, a blog article on my website at coldcasechristianity.com that's very extensive. It just talks about the system as it's applied to the Book of Mormon. And so you can get a sh chance to see why you would, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why anybody. But again, when you ask most Christians why they are a Christian, they don't tell you they went through this process to become a Christian. I bet you probably less than 1% of Christians went through any kind of evidential process to determine Christianity was true. Yeah. The vast so, majority will tell you they, they became Christians because they were raised that way or they had an experience that demonstrated for them that Christianity was true. Right. Which is the exact same two things that my Mormon family tells me. Said why the Mormon. same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so with regard to the system, briefly, uh, can you briefly explain wh how the what the system is and how it works? Well, we have jury instructions in California that help jurors determine if uh, a witness is telling the truth and could be considered reliable. And it's like thirteen questions that we allow jurors to think about as they're listening to witnesses. They just break down into four categories, and here they are. Number one. Was the witness really there? Can you demonstrate that he was there? Sometimes people will say they saw something, but actually we determined they weren't even in the state. 
Mm -hmm. So it's all a lie. Two, have they been um, consistent? Um, or can they be corroborated in some way? Is there something? Now remember, corroboration and verification is always touch point. So if you have a witness, if you have a, a video of the event, well, the video acts like the witness. So that's not going to, that's actually a witness. But if you're going to corroborate a living eyewitness in some way, it's only going to be a fraction of his, his or her statement. Because if you told me you jumped over the counter uh, and this guy jumped over the counter and screamed at the teller and pointed a gun at her and demanded money, well, I might be able to find a palm print to corroborate the witness's statement on the counter. But the palm print will not tell me what he was wearing or any of the other aspects of the witness's statement. What did he say? Was he carrying a gun? That palm print's not going to tell me any of that. So remember, I'm looking for corroborative evidence, but I expect it to be only a fraction of the overall statement. Three, did they change their story over time? Or have they been honest and accurate consistently? And four, do they possess a bias that would uh, cause them to want to lie to me? So these are the things that I'm looking at in eyewitnesses. And I decided, well, could I apply that strategy to the gospel authors? So my strategy and my approach is different than, say, for example, years later, I was reading. Um, uh, Sean McDowell became a friend of mine. Uh, we were taking students on mission trips. And um, I finally got a copy of the second edition of his dad's book back in those days. Not the one that's out right now, but there was a second edition in the middle. It was more evidence, I think. Was yeah, whatever it was, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. And I saw, you know, and I've worked with Josh and Sean, and I've seen the approach they take. They'll talk about, well, how many pieces of, how many manuscripts do we have? What is the distance between the event and the first man? That, none of that stuff matters to me. Eyewitnesses come down to those four things. And if those, if the, if the gospel authors pass the test in those four areas, why would we not consider them reliable? Well, it comes down to they pass the test in those four areas, but we don't, we have hesitancy about their reliability because they include miracles. Look, if, if I've always said this, if the gospels did not include miracles, how many people would find that the story is preposterous and discard Jesus of Nazareth as a historical character? Nobody would. You know, also, I see a lot right now is that there's a lot of scholarship and, and um, torment right now occurring related to contradictions that are seen between the Gospels. And I see people who are now, at least I see a lot in the last five years, that people will say, well, the genre eyewitness accounts in the first century allowed for such a thing. There, I'm going to tell you right now, there is no reason to jump to some literary theory related to genre because Current eyewitnesses on an event that happens today, if there are five eyewitnesses, they will end up having the exact same amount of variation in their accounts. Hmm. I know this only because I do it, okay? So I don't jump to, oh, well, you know, maybe the genre of eyewitness statements <laughs> included this. No, this is just what, now, now, can we determine what really happened? And by the way, defense attorneys love this. Because they know there will be differences. In every case I've ever had, the defense attorney tries to play on those differences to convince a jury that no one should be trusted. Mm -hmm. And I've never lost a case because people understand. We even have a jury instruction that tells the jury that just because there are differences in their story, they are not to be dis discredited because people see things differently. And they remember different details. And they put things in different orders and doesn't make a point. And, and I, I'll tell you that if you were to go back to the first century and you were the first or second reader of these documents, there were still people there that could explain why they sound and look differently. But the problem is, is as you get 30 years down the road, now all my witnesses are dead on a cold case. I don't have anyone to explain why you gave the statement in that order. 
or why you omitted this part or why you said this thing doesn't make any sense. And I'm 30 years down the road. I can't go back to the scene and go, oh, yeah, that's why it happened. So I just don't see any reason to jump to genre or to jump to a literary theory to reconcile differences because you will see some dramatic differences in eyewitness testimony. By the way, our goal as detectives is to preserve those differences. Hmm. So that's the first instruction we have. Dispatch calls me in the middle of the night to go to a homicide. I only have one instruction. Have the officers who are on the scene separate the eyewitnesses because I want the differences to be maintained. Hmm. Interesting. It'll help me to put the case. To, I'm the puzzler. Don't you start puzzling me before I get <laughs> So, So that's, that's kind of I, my view of it was that the differences actually in the accounts when I first read them were the thing that triggered for me, you know, I should apply this template. Hmm. Because this looks and feels texture like like eyewitness accounts. The level of variation is exactly what I would expect. The kind of the theory that uh, th- this is uh, people writing at a later time to kind of have a, uh, you know, uh, put Mark in a, a priestly position and, and, and kind of have this uh, uh, tie everything to, back to Levitical priests and, and tie everything to Jesus. You, you, you see... That theory is being less likely because you have these variations where you have people who emphasize different uh, uh, details, uh, like, uh, for example, in uh, John 2, where he talks about um, uh, leaving Capernaum, like that, that was John's hometown. And so he just makes this offhanded remark as, as if we would, if, if Tony and I were to say, oh, and we passed through Kalamazoo and no one would know where Kalamazoo is at, but we would because, hey, that's our hometown. Right. Well, there's there are some places in the Gospel of John, uh, a pool, for example, that was destroyed in 70 A.D., but he writes about it as though everyone knows where that is because it probably is pre-78. There's lots of ways to kind of dig out details yeah. about dating and all kinds of things from the Gospels. That's all well and good. I am just less inclined when I, when I know that the, the tail that's wagging the dog on a literary theory is an effort to reconcile differences between the accounts that's when i say hold on you don't need to develop a theory to reconcile differences any more than you would need to develop a theory today because i guarantee you if i have a homicide tonight and i get called out there will be differences that i just know now what the great thing about it in live i work cold cases i can't always go back and talk to the witness but on a fresh case if i'm talking to witnesses and i see there's a problem i can go back and ask the first witness. And I won't tell them what the second witness said. I'll just say, tell me again about this, trying to see if they'll add that detail that he admitted the first time hmm. to reconcile it. Unfortunately, we don't have that ability with the gospels. We can't go back and re-interview the sources and, and ask you kind of to mine out why there might be some variations between the accounts. Now, the problem I think it comes up though, is that for Christians, we're like, hey, well, this is the inerrant word. How do we reconcile inerrancy if would God allow the eyewitnesses to have the level of variation we would expect to have between eyewitnesses, I think he would, if he wanted us to be able to test them later. Hmm. So I always look at it and say, if God was determined to present us with four accounts that, that have all the earmarks of reliable eyewitness testimony, he achieved it Hmm. because we have four accounts that it's my experience talking to eyewitnesses are as varied and different as eyewitness accounts are in real cases in real time. 
So I, I had great confidence that, that that's now that's the goal God has in his inerrant word. He has achieved it. Yeah. So you have to define what we mean by inerrancy, I think, to begin with. I, yeah, always defining in terms is important. And I, th- I think, too, it's it's one of those things where uh, atheists kind of, uh, or at least uh, critics who are being uncharitable or uh, who are kind of parroting what they've heard, uh, you know, even Bart Ehrman c- comes about with, with this theory of like, you know, I, I need uh, three signatured copies of, of the Gospel of Mark, and then, you know, I would take it as as confidence that Mark wrote it. But at, at the same time, you know, if, if let, let's say that, all four gospel writers wrote exactly the same thing. Well, you would just make that decision that, well, whoever, whoever the author was just wrote his name different four different times. And so what, what, what they're suggesting is, you know, everything has to be said exactly the same, but you, right. you would say, well, there's collusion here. There's a conspiracy right. or there's just a single author who just wrote different names on, on a, on a sheet of paper. Yeah, I, I actually think that, that that regardless of how this would have turned out, and I know this is the case, right? I mean, we do cases, and regardless of how we put them together, there will be a defense attorney who will develop a theory about how to defeat our case. Um, this is just what happens. I, you don't get to a case, and you go, oh, now I've got this one. I will learn from my other cases. <laughs> better. So now I know when I go to trial, that defense attorney is just going to say, hey, you know what? We have nothing to say. No, the defense attorney is going to spend months developing a robust theory to defeat ours. That's what defense attorneys do. God bless them. And I think they, they, there's, a, there's a need to be properly. De- I'm not an anti-defense attorney guy. Uh, I talk about this in the book. That there are th- three different kinds of defense attorneys: people who truly believe their client is innocent, people who truly believe that that even if um, you know their client isn't innocent, that that the system works best and, and requires all of us to do our best in defending people. That's probably the lion's share, by the way, of, of defense attorneys. And then the third is the people who just are love money and they'll take any client and do anything if the money is big enough. That's a very small percentage in my view. Mm-hmm. The biggest percentage of people who think that even though my client is guilty, I have a robust duty to defend him to the best of my ability. And so that means that when I walk in, you know, I don't care how strong my case is on the prosecution side, there will be a very, if you've got the right attorney who's got, got a skill set, and by the way, if, I, if my case was slightly different, he would adjust. If my case was entirely different, he would adjust to that. And so I think that this is true also of any kind of skeptic who is pushing back against a theory, a, a, a claim, that regardless of what our claims would have been, regardless of whatever you imagine, if I had documents that were like X, there'd be no complaining. Oh, no, there would be. There would be a robust defense offered against that version of the Gospels. So, so I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, well, that's just the way, that's just the way this works. I think in the end, that there is a robust laboratory of epistemology. How do you know what we know? How do you defend what we know? How do you communicate what is true? That occurs every day in courtrooms across America. And and this doesn't happen. I mean, you might write a a paper uh, and have your other uh, equals, literary critics, um, maybe peer review the paper. But what happens in criminal trials is you have a theory about a claim and you present the theory about the claim and you get to test, number one, how do I know a theory is true? How do I know the claim is true? Two, how do I even communicate it well to a jury? What works, what doesn't work in communicating the claim? This is a laboratory for discovering truth and communicating truth to others that very few other disciplines get to experience repeatedly. That's why I've always felt like, you know, this is why so many books about Christianity, defending the Christian worldview, have been written with titles like that involve some form of evidence, courtroom, or trial, right? Yet they're not written by anybody who spent any time in a criminal trial. 
So, so it turns out they're right that this is the best analogy. This is the best place, I think, to learn how to discover truth and communicate it to others. But unless you've been doing that for your career, uh, you're kind of on the outside wondering what it looks like inside that room. Yeah. So I, all I wanted to do in cold case was to show you what it looks like inside the room. So you make a couple of, uh, you, you lay out several principles there in that particular book. You talk about abductive reasoning and you talk about the difference between uh, direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. So can you kind of briefly explain what those are and how that relates to with uh, in terms of the Gospels and, and what you discussed yeah. there? Well, I think that sometimes one of the best things we can do when trying to communicate, number one, you're trying to determine what is true and then trying to communicate to others is understand that there are time tested rules of evidence that will help you and processes that will help you to determine the truth of any claim. And so, for example, just understanding the difference between circumstantial evidence and direct evidence. The circumstantial evidence is also called indirect evidence. So I'll hear people say all the time, well, you don't have hard evidence for Christianity. You don't have hard evidence for God's existence. As if hard evidence is some kind of a category. It isn't. There are only two categories, and there's no such thing as hard evidence. The categories are direct and indirect. So direct evidence is simply eyewitness accounts. Everything else is indirect. Everything. I just made my first case ever with DNA. We did a press release probably five or six weeks ago now. Um, I, up, up to this time, I could tell you that I'd never had a DNA case. Hmm. It was a case from 1972. My dad, it was the original investigating officer. Wow. 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 47 <laughs> years later, we solved the case. I didn't solve it. It was solved with ancestry DNA. Hmm. Right. So a, a team of people who work ancestry DNA that we hired actually put the connected the dots. I simply had to find the DNA. That's what my role was. <laughs> well, I can tell you that when we make these kinds of DNA is indirect evidence. It's not hard evidence. It's not even direct evidence. It's indirect evidence. Fingerprints, indirect evidence. Material evidence, indirect evidence. Statements he makes, indirect evidence. Observations of behavior, indirect evidence. If it's not an eyewitness who can testify to what happened, it falls in the indirect category. And that's circumstantial, right? Yes, which means it's all circumstantial. As a matter of fact, I say this a lot, the overwhelming percentage of cases that are tried in America, I mean in the high 80s, is circumstantial and entirely circumstantial for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, if you have an, an eyewitness who saw you do it or two or three, or you're on video doing it, that's another form of direct evidence because it's like an eyewitness. Uh, if you have that kind of thing, you're probably taking a plea deal. Okay. You're not going to trial. You're only going to trial if it's a case where they don't have an eyewitness and they have to make it circumstantially. So that's why the vast majority of trial cases are entirely circumstantial. All of my cases prior to that one DNA case were 100% circumstantial. So that is, is the kind of thing that um, uh, you learn. And if you know that, it means that you, the bar is different, right? So all the evidence we're going to have that demonstrates the Christian worldview is true is going to be probably in that circumstantial category. So the idea that while you can't know something, if all you have is circumstantial evidence is simply false. That's what most cases in America, and most of those are won in the high 90s, and they're made entirely on circumstantial evidence. And I've had 100% a, a record on entirely circumstantial. Wow. Well, that's just because that's just the nature of it. We have to help people see that those are the categories and stop saying you don't have any hard evidence. And by the way, judges tell juries that 
direct evidence and indirect evidence hold the exact same value in their deliberations. They have the exact same weight. They are told that as a jury instruction. So stop thinking, well, I need 10 pieces of circumstantial before I can get to one piece of, of, of direct. That's not how it works. They're all to have the exact same weight in your evaluation. So we need to stop saying it's just a circumstantial case or all they have is circumstantial evidence because it turns out that's the nature of, and that's to be considered with the same weight as direct evidence. So, so when you look at the Gospels then, what are we looking at there with regard to evidence? Well, you're looking at... Uh, so that's a hard one, right? Because I think in some ways that we don't have video from the first century. The closest thing we have are what appear to be two, Matthew and John, that I believe are written by eyewitnesses, and two that are not written by eyewitnesses, Mark, who writes uh, at the feet of Peter in Rome, according to Papias, and Luke, who tells us he's writing after having, now that makes sense he would have eye con a contact with the eyewitnesses because he's in first person in the book of Acts when he's with Paul. Paul, like Luke, like everybody else in that first century, had all kinds of contact with the other eyewitnesses, with Barnabas, with all kinds of people, and they could discuss what they had been told. And he tells us this in the first chapter of Luke, that he is not an eyewitness, that he is writing after having investigated carefully, he says, and he writes an orderly account of what he has learned. Okay. I, I like the theory that that Luke is writing kind of the court papers that he's passing on for Paul at his at his trial. Yeah, that's right. I, I've heard that theory, that kind of way have been, been stated before as well. But regardless of what the occasion is that would cause him to write to this most excellent Theophilus, <laughs> um, whoever that person is and whatever it is that Luke is writing, the question is, where does this fall, right? So, so I would say this is, is indirect evidence in, 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 in Luke's case and, and probably in, but if we're just going to consider it in terms of what is it recording, well, then it is recording what is allegedly an eyewitness account. Now, because we can't cross-examine the witnesses, this becomes what we call hearsay, right? So in other words, we want to be able, to, uh, anyone who's accused has the right to cross-examine people who are accusing them. So you can't come in and say, well, you know, my sister said he killed, she saw him kill. Well, well you want the, per did you see him kill that person? No, but my sister told me he did. Well, I need to talk to your sister then, okay? <laughs> You're one person removed. This is hearsay. You need to, I, I need to be able to cross-examine your sister to see if she holds up. So what, what is the problem we have with these accounts is people will say, well, they're here. But look, history has a different level of proof standard than does a criminal trial. In a criminal trial, we try to raise the level so high that we would rather let, you know, 100 guilty people go than wrongly convict one innocent person. So we have a hearsay rule. So you can confront your, your, your uh, accuser. But if this was applied to history, well, then you could never know anything about history beyond the generation of the people who are living that history. So clearly the standard has to be different for history. And as far as that standard goes, I think we can reasonably call these eyewitness accounts. So the Gospels then would qualify as eyewitness, even even Luke and Mark, you would, you would suggest. Well, and there are people who will argue that there are some uh, uh, areas of civil law, for example, where these could be included as a kid. But I'm not going to argue that. I'm just going to say, look, I this is how I start my cases. I get a, a notebook. As a matter of fact, I've got several sitting behind me here from cases I've had over the years. Um, and this big notebook is red because it's an unsolved. I open it up. And there are usually a number of, there's the crime report, there's the death report, there's going to be a, a CSI report, there's going to be an autopsy. And then there are going to be a number of supplemental reports in that notebook that were taken when detectives back in the day interviewed eyewitnesses. 
often I don't have access to those eyewitnesses anymore because they've died. And there are times when I don't even have access to the report writers because they died. All I'm telling you is how do I determine what happened four decades ago when I have no access to the original eyewitnesses and no access to the people who talked to them, but I do have the reports of those interviews. Would I have enough to be able to make this case to figure out what really happened? Even if I couldn't put it in front of a jury, would I have enough so that I could have confidence that I know what happened? Well, yeah, there's a process. This is what I tried to describe in cold case. Let's just be fair. If we apply that process to cold cases and we're confident that it gets us to a conclusion that we can trust and then incarcerate someone for the rest of his life or put them on death row, why would we not be able to use that standard to determine whether our eternal future uh, can be, uh, you know, rest on the information in, in the Gospels? I think you could apply it. What, what, what other way would you? And again, once you've worked with eyewitnesses, it does give you the protection of not having to jump to theories to explain things that you start to see in cases from just 30 years ago. I'll give you another example of this. It's often said that the authorship of certain books is, or they'll say there's more than one author because they'll see differences in either the original language or maybe in the pacing of the book or some critical element of the book that pops up and some words are used in the last half of the book that aren't used in the first half of the book. I get all that. Um, I have cases though. I'll give you an example of this. I had a case from years ago that was uh, actively worked for three years before it went cold. And the first days of the first officer who was assigned the case, he would come back and he would either type on a typewriter. And because of the technology, if he made a small mistake, he would not necessarily, like if we make a mistake on the computer, we can rewrite the entire sentence. Right. If he made a mistake, he would say, oh, it's not perfect. He'd change a few words. He'd keep on typing. The next day, yeah, he'd go out and he'd investigate something, and then he would come back, and he's in the press. For, he would ask our secretary, can I just recite this to you? And she's still a typewriter. She's much more facile. And he's just saying what he did that day, and she's just updating the report. And she's got it's, it's going to sound different because she's actually more illiterate than the detective, okay? <laughs> and uh, three weeks go by, and he can't work anything else. But then he gets a chance to work it again. He goes back out, and he does something, and he comes back, and now it's a different steno. This goes on for three years. Well, I tell him I get it. It's a 100-page report. But it was not written at one setting. And it turns out a different steno was used over the course of the three years. If a thousand years goes by and a literary critic then retrieves this report, I guarantee you they will assume that there's more than one author. Hmm. Because the technology changes over those three years. Different technology from the typewriter to the steno who's just repeating it. Sometimes he would record it. And then he wouldn't even be there when the steno would take the recording and make it into the report. And those stenos had our permission to fix our grammatical errors. Hmm. And they would. Made us look better. We're good. But they made us sound better. Now, look, the same thing happens in ancient documents. We don't know how long some of these were written over time. It's clear that Paul has got a steno. He's got a, a scribe, a writer. In many of his reports, he mentions the name of that writer. He signs off and says, this is in my own hand. Why would he say that? Because the rest of it's not in his own hand. The rest of it is something he's either reset. Do we know how long he's done? Is it all sitting in one setting? You sound different. If I answer the same questions with you tomorrow, my answers will probably sound a little bit different, right? Even if you said, okay, let's just stop right here and pick up the second part of the conversation tomorrow. I might use different words tomorrow based on what's in my head tomorrow. If I wait three weeks, it's even going to be more grammatically different. So I think we just can't draw assumptions large uh, overarching assumptions that would discredit the reliability of any ancient manuscript 
when we still have open questions about the time span in which it was written, did he have any help as he was writing it? What kind of technology in terms of what's the surface he's writing on? What kind of ink does it allow for corrections? Does it allow for me to go back and back up and say that again? These are the kinds of things we have to keep in mind, even with documents that are just 30 years old. Can you imagine if we're talking about a document that's 2,000 years old? Yeah, and you're facing persecution, and you're you know, the, the, you're yeah, you don't you don't have a, a flashlight to 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 go by this. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in antiquity that that uh, yes. we take for granted today. Comes back to that definition of inerrancy. So you're telling me then that there are documents that might have been in some way limited by the text by the process of recording or writing. And the technology available, why wouldn't, well, God would overcome all that, right? Well, again, I think in the end, what he wants to achieve are documents that are real and are testable and have the earmarks of reliable testimony. And I actually think that that, that these these, um, um, uh, characteristics of the ancient manuscripts are what gave me most confidence that they were actually recording something true. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if you can speak towards the kind of the supernatural aspect, if, if you get a, a case within your wheelhouse today mm-hmm. and someone says, you know, uh, you know, I saw a, a, a demon push the guy out the window or yeah. uh, there was an angel that came by and, and you know, sh- uh, shot the person. How, how do you, you know, it seems like you would have to take those claims seriously today because you're looking at New Testament documents that have fantastical claims and the whole idea of, uh, you know, fantastical claims require fantastical evidence. How do you, how do you deal with that today? And, and kind of, how do you answer that objection? I get this question a lot, surprisingly. Um, oh, darn, I thought I had something original. <laughs> yeah, I'll say it this way. Well, you're not, if you're investigating a case today, you're not going to jump to supernatural explanations. So in your work, you never jump to supernatural explanations. Well, I will tell you that I'm working on a series right now where we're actually addressing this very issue. But, but it's not as though as a Christian I am, uh, or as a not well, as a believer, I am not opposed to looking at supernatural explanations. I'm not. I mean, how could I be and be uh, honest about my approach to Scripture? Do I believe it or not? Um, the idea that there is an invisible world and that there are forces, personal agents, invisible personal agents in the world, acting, is a concept that's in Scripture on the pages of the New Testament. So what I would do, now I just have never had a case though, again, what I do living in a material world with this invisible uh, unseen realm, is that I first exhaust what's in the material realm. That's I would expect anyone doing this kind of work to first exhaust what is available to me as in the material realm that God has created. And if I get to the end of that and there's no explanation in the material realm, then why wouldn't I be be willing to jump to an immaterial explanation? I'm somebody who's a dualist. I believe in such things. My problem is in my work, I've never exhausted the material realm without coming to a suspect. Mm -hmm. So what can I say? Now, I'm looking for cases right now in which you could exhaust the material realm and the best explanation is something immaterial. So, So I think they're out there. But right. the question is, you know, where are they? What kind of, what nature would they be? And who, who's in a position who could really investigate such things to be, well, I have a template. I'm not going to share it with you today because we're still working on this, but it's a template in which would help us to exhaust material explanations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I see as Christians, we're not going to jump 
Look, I'm somebody who believes that the DNA that guides all of the formation of biological systems and processes in your body is best explained by a personal agent who has given us the information which we find in DNA. But I, I won't go there if I can find some material cause. The problem is that sometimes you just, the, the best explanation is immaterial and intelligent. And so, for example, I always say it this way. If I've got a death at a scene, I'm not sure how this person died, but they struck the ground in such a way that they cut their head and there's blood spatter on the wall. Sometimes that blood spatter won't really help me because it doesn't tell me how they were thrown to the ground or how they got on the ground, but it can tell me something about the geometry of the strike on the ground and knowing enough about physics and chemistry, the chemistry of blood and the physics of that blood spatter, I can maybe account for why there is spatter on the wall in that way. I can offer a material cause. But if I get there and there's not blood spatter, but instead in the victim's blood, it says he deserved it written on the wall. (laughs) Am I really going to stop and say, well, how do I explain that with just physics and chemistry? No, (laughs) I think it's reasonable at that point to be looking for a personal agent. And so I think there are, as a a Christian, I'm not somebody who says I'm going to jump right away to the fit to the personal agent. God did it. God did it. God did it. No, I'm going to go through a process that gets me there eventually. But I, I want to know because I, I believe that God is the creator of this environment that we live in, and we are. To, and we're told in Romans one that there's evidence of God in our environment. I, I just feel that's where I start. I start. In the, I'm a physical being, so I'm best able, I think, to start with physical processes. But once those are exhausted, I think I can go to personal agency, or I can go to some other form of non-material cause. Um, in cold case Christianity, you uh, suggest to people to control or suspend your presuppositions. Don't be a know-it-all. Let this evidence speak for your, itself. D- doesn't this uh, lend some some good benefit that uh, presuppositionalists have by saying, if if you're presenting, uh, uh, you know, metaphysical or supernatural claims to an unbeliever who doesn't have this ability to um, to, to to claim non naturalistic realm you know, how do we, how do we speak to them then when, when it comes to the supernatural, when, when we, when we make the claim from, you know, did, did Christ rise from the grave? Okay. Well, you know, in an evolutionary world, uh, you know, our quantum flux, things can pop in and out of existence and Jesus so happened to time it perfectly for, for that to happen. I mean, you know, it isn't, doesn't, doesn't the controlling or suspending our presuppositions, uh, to, to what degree can, can we honestly do that? Oh, well, it's a couple of different questions you're asking there. So, yeah, I think that all of us have opinions, and we don't expect to put jurors in, in place who don't have strong opinions. The question is, can't we ask them, are you able to suspend your bias or suspend your beliefs or to suspend whatever visceral emotional reaction you might be having to something in the, in the case in order to judge as fairly as you can. We, we get it that, that there are no such clean slate robots that are available for us to do jury, uh, to impanel jury. So we get that. So we have to kind of work within the context of people who have opinions and who have experiences and have desires and, 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 and preferences that, that they're going to actually be part of their decision-making process. We get that. Um, so I think that's so that, that part of it. I don't think you can, but the real issue becomes, okay. So, um, when you ask about presuppose, I'm trying to make sure you're, you're asking. So, so if you're, if you're so ask me, just ask me that question one more time in a way that, so what about presuppositions do you think is the issue? 
Yeah. So, so for, for example, uh, you know, um, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles says mm -hmm. that uh, to to talk to somebody who doesn't believe that miracles are possible, miracles will never be possible because their worldview doesn't allow for God to enter okay. or for for supernatural beings to yeah. enter into an, a natural world. And okay, so, I understand what you're saying now. I, yeah. So what I tried to do, and this is what I actually did for myself. So I talk about this, my process into Christianity was kind of backwards. So I, I got to the point where I'm like, wow, you know, I, this, every way you could test these gospels, they seem to be able to hold up to scrutiny and they appear to be reliable. Okay. That for me seemed like it was, I could check that box, but I still would have said, uh, but, but the, the miracle stuff, uh, that's, that's where I have a stretch. Okay. I'm not quite sure about that. So that's what caused me to think about my own commitment to naturalism, my own commitment to the idea that everything in the universe could be explained with the stuff that's in the universe, space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. Because in that construct, if that's all we're working with, then everything we observe has to be explained with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. And I ended up doing the work that I had published in a second book called, called God's Crime Scene, where I just talked about, well, look, we've got good reason to believe that there are immaterial causes and features of the universe that cannot be explained from the stuff that's in the room of the universe, space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. Look, we already know we're in a universe that has a beginning. The best scientific work demonstrates this. This causes all kinds of people to jump to all kinds of cosmological theories. How do we get a universe from nothing? And what they believe is that all, from the science, that all space, time, matter, comes into existence from nothing, not from a prior temporal void. Not, there's no space, time, or matter before the universe comes into existence. Now, think, but wrap your head around that for a second. That means that the first cause of the universe has to be non-spatial, non-temporal, non-material. We already think there's a, a, a force out there that is not of the natural realm, given that we think the natural realm, by definition, has space, time, matter acted on by uh, physics and chemistry. There's something out there that's outside of that, that is the first cause of the universe. Not only that, we experience immaterial realities like consciousness and free agency that are either entirely elusive. There is an illusion, as Sam Harris believes, because you can't explain them if, if all we have is this physical deterministic universe that explains material things like brains, but it has a difficult time explaining immaterial things like minds. Yeah, we just, in we other just words, recently covered that in an episode of, of our podcast of Sam. Good. So, so that's good. So you've already kind of, so my problem is, is that look, we already are, you've already bitten into this apple that exposes you to immaterial causes and immaterial realities. The only question is, are those personal or impersonal forces? Mm -hmm. If they're well, personal, and I think DNA tells us the story about whether they're personal or impersonal. I think that moral truths all moral obligations are just that. They're obligations between persons. If there are objective, transcendent moral obligations, there must be an objective, transcendent moral person. You're not morally obligated to physics. You're not, and physics could never give you moral obligations. Right. So I think in the end, there are good reasons to believe that those immaterial realities of the universe are personal. Well, that now, okay, now I can go back to the Gospels. Because if there is a personal being that can create everything from nothing, walking on water is small potatoes. <laughs> everything else falls as a subset of Genesis 1, which is the most impressive miracle on the pages of Scripture. Hmm. Everything from nothing. Yeah. 
if, if you want to know more about uh, what Jay Warren Wallace is talking about, uh, see the podcast, uh, uh, Cape to the Cross Apologetics. We recently covered all, all this. So yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're talking about this now is, is, uh, you know, does, does, a, uh, does morals or does ethics require uh, a person or values uh, to, to be a valuer and, and how do you have uh, uh, values w- without uh, people or more than one person. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you think about that, that's really, it's, it, and there's only a couple of ways to ground them. First of all, not every atheist agrees that there are objective moral truths to begin right. with. Yeah. But those who do think that there are objective moral truths have to figure out a way to ground them. Uh, because there's only, you know, there's only subjective and objective. And if it's all a matter of personal opinion, well, that's a subject. If it's a matter of group think, like cultural consensus, that's a group of subjects. Those are both subjective explanations. Sam Harris actually offers a, a better alternative, I think, which is that it's grounded in the objective nature of human beings. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that is transcends all of us is our human nature, that for us to thrive as humans, we adopt a code that is really there to help us thrive. It's just a reflection of what uh, helps us to thrive. But of course, the problem with that is that he has to import uh, a certain notion of thriving, of well-being. Right. Yep. Because if all he means is survival, all kinds of bad stuff can actually, as a matter of fact, you, the three of us are talking right now because somewhere in our history, somebody acted very poorly to make sure their tribe survived over another. You and I are both examples of how bad behavior can help us to thrive. We can't live here to thrive at all if not for the bad behavior of our ancestors. So I think we have to define what do you mean by thrive? And then you import things you haven't earned yet, right? Because you have a notion, a very loving, uh, sympathetic, tolerant notion of what it is to, to thrive as a human. But where do you get that notion? Why is that true for us? Right? Well, as you can't say it helps us to survive. The most tolerant, loving people were usually in history the victims of a group that is thriving better now because they victimized the, the pacifist. So that's the problem is that you cannot get here from there. Great. Yeah, well, I, I had to at least ask you one presuppositional uh, question because as presuppositionalists who appreciate evidentialists, I know that you share... Uh, especially on your Twitter, a lot of presuppositional links, which I absolutely. appreciate. So. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that I'm not polarized on this issue. I, I think that each of us ends up dipping into the other. We all end up with a, uh, a palette that we paint with. And on that palette is classical apologetics approaches and evidential apologetics and presuppositional approaches. And, and, and we all paint from that palette. Now, we might say, well, I like blue better than any other color. <laughs> so most of my stuff is major blue. Okay, fine, great. But I, I, I'd be lying to you if I said I don't dip into the other paints. I paint with all the colors. And, and I do that, uh, although I might have a preference for one of those colors, I do use all the colors. I think we all do that. I mean, yeah. I'm a presuppositionalist sometimes, like, but, but I, I, when I get to Mormonism and my Mormon friends, I have to go become a very strict evidentialist because those are presuppers. All the Mormons are not evidentialists. They're presuppositionalists. I've, I've, I've always wanted to, to tell Frank Turk, so please pass this on. When he titles his book, Stealing from God, I, I want him to, to uh, term any time that he talks about uh, a morality claim when he talks to groups stealing from presuppositionalists because he becomes a presuppositionalist there. <laughs> we so. all, well, we all do. And I think that's, <laughs> that is important, but, but how do I get there? In other words, to say that um, these characteristics of the universe are best explained as having emanated from the mind of God, when I'm making that case in God's crime scene, I'm using evidence mm-hmm. to explain why a presuppositional view 
is a better view to take. And I think you'll find yourself doing that on occasion when someone pushes back. Yeah. And actually, it's almost always in the realm of objections that presuppositionalists become evidentialists, right? So if you say, hey, the Bible best explains this, and someone says, well, you can't trust the Bible. It's been transmitted, you know, for, for centuries, and no one even took care of the transmission of that thing. Well, suddenly, you're going to point to the evidence for the reliability of transmission of the document, right? Right. Right. To, to be able to show why this presupposition is, is worthy. You're not just going to stop and say, well, no, 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 I don't care what you think about. You're, you're actually going to defend against the objection using evidence, probably. Yeah, yeah we, we, uh, because we, we both believe in uh, the authenticity of Scripture, we're, we're able to give an answer uh, from, from Scripture as well as make the other side give, give an answer as well to, to make them right. explain the evidence or, or at least yeah. their claim. So, yeah, yeah you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, you, you use various colors on the palette. Yeah. You're, you're, that's, right. that's, that's why my Twitter page, you know, that all, all my Twitter is, is the top 15. I follow over 800 blogs every day on my phone on an RSS reader. I scan through all of those blogs from reliable sources and I try to find the top stories, the top, articles written about apologetics, mostly from an evidential perspective, because that's who I am. But, uh, and also because that's the like 80% of the writers. I mean, if I'm honest with you, there's not a lot of presuppositionals who are writing online. There are a few, I follow them and I post their stuff, but, but there's not a lot. And so it's like, okay, so I post what there is. Yeah. But I post all of it because I think what's not, uh, sightly is the, the, um, the dialogue between presuppositionalists and evidentialists. It can be nasty. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this. It's almost <laughs> always a little bit more aggressive coming from the presuppositional side. Yeah. I think it's unfair to say. Mm -hmm. but that's I, I, I think that's very fair to say. Yeah. So I'm looking at that and saying, okay, we just need to, I, I, I need to honor both sides. I'm not going to get, I, I, I squelch any negativity toward presuppositional apologetics on all of my social media platforms. If you're gonna say that, you're gonna get blocked. Mm -hmm. Because I just don't think that that's a, a becoming dialogue. It doesn't, it doesn't become us just to, 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 to say, well, I like blue. And you're not even saved if you're using red. That's what I hear sometimes. <laughs> yeah, okay? right. Yeah, and, 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 okay, you know what, There's, that's, that's not gonna help anybody. Right. And I don't think that's true. And, and there are times, you know, my book, uh, Frank's book, Stealing from God, is much like my God's crime scene in that we both make some we're defending why we presuppose what we presuppose yeah um and we want to be respectful of your time and uh th thanks for coming on but i i i need to i need to uh, bookend this with with what was kind of the final moments for you what was the 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 thing i i i'm i'm sure uh it, it was you know a, a a succession of evidences that got you but what was Kind of, can you can you give me your you know uh, literally come to, come to Jesus moment? I I, I don't want to ask too, too personal for for you, but maybe what was like kind of the last piece of evidence that clicked, or what was the what what, what would you say would be kind of your moment there? Okay, so I get asked this question so often <laughs> by Christians, and it's because we have I I'm just gonna make my little I'm gonna tell you, but I'm gonna make my little preface first. Is that I get asked this question a lot. And I think it's because we have we, we've twisted what the word testimony. It's really important to us to hear each other's testimony. I know you may not feel this way, but I mean, most average people who are in the church at some point they're like, "All this evidence is fine, 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 fine." Just tell me though, what was your experience? What was your your salvation experience? And I always say, "Why do you need to know that? Why do you even care?" <laughs> I always say, "I'll be honest with you. My transformational testimony." 
doesn't matter. And either does yours. What matters is, is this true? That's all I should be talking about. Now, it's interesting because this idea of providing personal testimony is very common in the world amongst other religious groups. My Mormon family, they will always get to testimony quickly because they cannot make a case for what they believe evidentially. So they'll quickly get to testimony, personal testimony. And I'm, I'm okay, I, I have a personal testimony, but I think that unless it can be verified by some evidential process, it's just another testimony and everyone's got one. And I think what we've done is we've taken that word, te- well, the first, where does that word use? Well, it's in Book of Acts. If you go through it, people gave their testimony. Right. What was their testimony? Was it about their transformational experience? No. It was about having seen the resurrected, the resurrected Christ, direct evidence. It was about direct testimony. Everyone goes there. Hey, there was a man you all crucified, but he was attested by miracles. We saw him rise from the grave. That is what, when John, when Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who will come to believe this is true, who haven't seen me. It's because they will have the testimony of those who have. That's direct evidence. And every testimony offered on the pages of the New Testament is that kind of testimony, the kind of testimony we see in courts from eyewitnesses, not personal experiences. Now, for me, I got to a place where I um, definitely had belief that. All that was, was that I believed that the Gospels were telling me something I could trust about Jesus of Nazareth. I was not a Christian. I just had belief that. Lots of people have belief that. doesn't make them a Christian. You got to move to believe in. For me, that's, and I, that this process, I think, is true for all of us. Is that without the good, bad news, like you said, there is no good news. Mm-hmm. And once I read, then I stopped reading it to test it constantly for six months to see if it was telling me something true about Jesus. Once I determined that it was, I started to read it to see if it was telling me anything true about me. That's what changed everything. Mm-hmm. Because once I realized that yeah, I can trust this author, and he's describing me in a way that is unflattering but true. I knew I needed a Savior. And then I knew there was a Savior to, 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 for me because I'd already done that work. And that's what made the difference in transition. So it was reading through you know, the New Testament, looking to see what does it say about Jim Wallace that is, is disturbingly true, that then motivated me to do something with the information I had about Jesus. That is the transition, I think, from believe that to believe in that saves us. Now, I, I don't believe that any of this happens because of the high intelligence capacity of the investigator named Jim Wallace. <laughs> of course, it's all God. But what is the what is the, the the what are the words that those who are sent by God are to use with those who are to hear? The words. I mean, one of my good friends is is Ray Comfort. I think Ray Comfort does amazing work. But you won't see a Ray Comfort approach on the pages of the New Testament. You just won't. You know, have you ever lied? Well, you're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, you're a thief. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Well, you're you're an adulterer. That's very true. It's the bad news presented in a way that we all recognize. We fit the description. But that is not what the New Testament evangelists did. They testified as I, they were selected because they were eyewitnesses. They replaced Judas with Matthias because Matthias was an eyewitness from the baptism to the resurrection. That's what they were looking for, eyewitnesses. 
And then all of their testimony going forward is eyewitness testimony. And then who gets chosen to write scripture? You got to be an eyewitness. That's what's on the pages of the New Testament. Those are eyewitnesses who are writing those letters. That stuff is powerful for me as somebody who like, you know, I, that, that was I, as an investigator. I was like, wow, this is awesome because there seems to be a high regard for direct evidence in the New Testament. I mean, you'll see this. Think about this. If, if I was Jesus and I had a presuppositional approach, when John comes with his disciples and says, hey, John wants to know he's in custody. Are you the one? Well, how would Jesus as a presuppositionalist respond to them? What words would he use to give John? Turns out he doesn't use any of those words. What he does instead is does three miracles in front of the disciples of John, says, go back and tell John. Not to pray harder, not to, no. He says, go tell John what you just saw. That's an evidentialist. So for me, I was like, okay, I can live with that guy. <laughs> And I think that's how God uses, at least how he did in the first century. This is, this is the way the gospel was preached. And so when I share with people, I, I share what is the truth. And we know this by way of evidence and by way of both special and natural revelation. I can demonstrate the existence of God. Also, you're fall, having worked these cases for so many years, I can also demonstrate the fallen nature of humans from both natural revelation and special revelation. These things, if God is true, these things will always match. And so I'm able to use both because for me, I just, you couldn't have started with scripture because I had Mormons trying to do that. And I was, uh, that just turned me off to that whole approach. Hmm. And I think that's true for a lot of people, but not for everybody. I'm sure everyone's got different, but I'll tell you what, once you know, like all of, both of you have a good grasp of all of the evidence of reasons why you believe this is true. And if you're like me, you're probably sometimes frustrated that most of the church doesn't seem to care about this at all. Right. Like they aren't ready to make this case and they're not even concerned that they don't, aren't ready. Well, that's because you already get it. And I, I think that's, that's what, where I want my young people for sure. If nothing else, if you've got parents listening to this, if you can become the kind of Christian parent who can actually answer the questions your kids are going to ask from junior high on, because that's where it starts, you'll be in a better place to help your kids overcome their doubts and live confidently as Christians. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we see that in, in the Shema uh, from, from uh, you know, uh, yep. the Old Testament, and it's supposed to continue on today. We, we are the, the heads of the household, and we're, we're uh, encouraged to tell our immediate family first, because those are the people who we have spent so much time with and that we're in charge of. And, and I think that's a, a very important point that, uh, that, you know, wherever you stand in, in, the, in the cavalcade of of evidence or presuppositionalists or apologetics yeah. in general, that, that, uh, that's our, our, our biggest responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Next generation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Detective Warren, I, I greatly appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I'm a big here. fan of, you know, we've got your books and, and yeah. we're going to link them below. Uh, it, it, tell me where, where do you want people to interact with you? Or uh, to, to to what what venue do you want them to? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. They can our, our daily work is at coldcasechristianity.com. I, I post there five days a week, Monday through Friday, um, and uh, and our kids' uh, materials are all at casemakersacademy.com. But people ask all the time, like, how do I uh, can I interact? 
and I'm bombed on social media. So I just created an app that allows people to ask questions. It's just the cold case Christianity app. It's in both the Android and the uh, iTunes store. So you can download that night every day before I do anything else. I have a list, a checklist of things I do in the morning. And one of them is to get on the app and answer the questions in the chat room. So, wow. so anyway, that's, uh, that's a place you can interact with me. Yeah, wow. for sure. Uh, yeah, and uh, I've I've got uh, you know m my father was a, a police officer for 22 years. My my boss right now uh, started uh, the Kalamazoo Portage um, cold case department wow. when he was uh, uh, there, and he became chief of police eventually. So um, uh, you know th th this this book <laughs> this book is uh, is is going to be lots of uh, lots of Christmas gifts for for people that I know. Oh, I'm, so. I'm glad to hear. It. I hope it's helpful. I appreciate that. <laughs> so again, we, we appreciate you yeah. and appreciate your work, and uh, you know we're, we're excited for the next book and your previous books too. So. Thanks, brother. Appreciate yeah, thanks, you guys. Thanks Both for coming. You. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Thanks. See you later. Yep. Bye.